crazy. I need to get you back out here so that I can play like friend matchmaker and actually have you meet and see Spencer. <laughs> oh, that would be great. Yeah, I, I, it was really fun listening to the episode because he's a delight. He's just a delightful person. And you're going to hear more of him this week. Uh, this is part two of Orpheus and Eurydice with none other than Spencer Stark. It was that moment, okay, you know when you listen to a podcast and you're like, oh my god, I'm sitting in the same room with them, I'm just the Mm -hmm. quiet person, and we're all in the same conversation. Listening back to the episode and getting it ready for release, I was like, oh my god, I'm friends with them. And I was like, Rowan, you are one half of them, for starters. (laughs) But I thought the same thing listening to the episode before before it was released, which I say as if that's like a cool, like, oh my god, I got to listen to it before it was released. I am one half of this podcast. (laughs) <laughs> you are actually obligated to listen to it before release. Yeah, yeah I didn't have a choice. <laughs> but you and Spencer just had such a fun energy that all I want is to be locked in a room with the two of you and be that quiet party just sitting and listening to you philosophize on Greek myths. We got to get you in a game. We got to get you out here to be in a game. Yes, please. So for anyone who's sitting in their car doing their dishes, laundry, I don't know, whatever you do when you listen to podcasts and you're going, what are you talking about? Who is Spencer? Well, Tracy left me. I did. (laughs) I abandoned you so cruelly and with no warning whatsoever. Like a kitten being rained on in a sad cardboard box. Oh, okay. I leave for one episode and you go full sad boy. Well, technically you left me for two episodes now. Okay, now it's justified. (laughs) Never mind. Go full sad boy. I'll take a step back. (laughs) So Tracy left on vacation. We asked Spencer Stark, our friend, if he would come on the pod. He said yes. And Spencer and I were like, good. Tracy's gone. The optimist, the happy one. We can make it a sad boy podcast. Yeah, get that nice one out of the room. We got to just go dig into our sad, sad little dark corner. (laughs) So this episode is part two of Orpheus and Eurydice, where Spencer and I talk about life, death, and dice. Huh? Uh? (laughs) Oh! So if you want to get your own set of dice, so you can talk to your friends about (laughs) life, love, loss, and dice. Gaslight. Where can you do that, Rowan? (laughs) We don't gatekeep love lofts life and dice on this podcast actually for real we really don't gatekeep dice um and this has been arguably the most ridiculous transition we've ever done but (laughs) which is saying something (laughs) but everyone knows that leah from greenleaf geek has sponsored the podcast for quite a minute and i had such a moment of pride the other day i was like talking shop with other podcasters blah 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 and uh my friend was talking about how difficult it is to find sponsorships that actually appeal to your community Mm. that aren't just you know everyone needs a bed so you should buy the mattress like something that's really specific and Mm -hmm. i kind of got to sit back and be like oh oh wait we have greenleaf geek we get to partner with this amazingly talented artist who makes handmade custom resin dice, who curates the most gorgeous collection of really accessible gaming gear. And on our Discord daily, our patrons are talking about the games that they're in and the Greenleaf Geek dice they're playing with. 
Oh, all my friends and family use Green Leafy Dice now too. All of them know, and it's something that Rowan and I do as a goof constantly, but everyone in our life knows it. We just go, use code FABLE for 10% off your order whenever we're talking about dice. It's so fun. We should eventually <laughs> get a t-shirt that just says coupon code FABLE. That's such a good idea. I love that. <laughs> so if you want to get a good discount on some of the best dice out there, you can go to greenleafgeek.com or check out at greenleafgeek on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok. And when you buy your collection of amazing, shiny, fun dice, make sure to use code FABLE, that's F-A-B-L-E, for 10% off your order. Some restrictions apply. All right. Uh, Tracy, get out of here. The rest of this episode is me and Spencer. All right. Bye, everyone. See you next week. Bye, current Rowan. Enter past Rowan and Spencer Stark. Ah, I love it so much. Do you want to talk about other more modern adaptations? Yeah, I mean, now that we've kind of gone through, right, we went from like the, we went from the, uh, from the piece of pottery now to this European uh, interpretation uh, and, and over-sexualization of the women who killed Orpheus. We got a flow, That's baby. Just, you know, we're, there are, <laughs> this myth has been redone a number of ways that I, I didn't even, I didn't realize uh, until we started talking about, it. I mean, there are ones that are very obvious, which maybe is the first one we should talk about, which is Hades Town. Romeo and Juliet. Um, well, hey. <laughs> <laughs> No, I knew you were going to say Hades Town. I was just being a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Romeo and Juliet, we'll talk about which Romeo and Juliet is, anyway, Romeo and Juliet is very interesting in its interpretation of this myth. But Hades Town is literally. Hades Town. <laughs> it's literally the most, like, um, uh, on so the good. nose interpreted, uh, uh, you know, Tony Award winning uh, Broadway musical. If you haven't seen it or listened to the music i uh, highly recommend it it is a an absolutely stunning piece of art i've never seen it on the stage um Me i've either. only had the chance to listen to it but uh it's coming to the amundsen later this month so do you I'm have going tickets when it opens i do and i will <gasps> we are going uh uh hannah got them for me for my birthday and <gasps> we're going uh, uh later this month but it plays through end of may i think end of may. so anyway if we want to get a group together and go again i'm so down because it is Yes, we should do that. Uh, We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it when we get the podcast. Um, Okay. uh, But even just from listening to the music, the part of the show that sort of stands out the most to me is the way that it interprets the message behind the myth. Um, And slight spoilers to the musical, but the the show basically follows the the myth very closely. So, like, (laughs) uh, it's not really a surprise what happens at the end, right? We all know how the story goes. Um, Basically, instead of trying to assign a meaning to the ending... Um, give us something that like makes it clear why Orpheus turns around, why he has to lose everything he just worked so hard for. The show actually steps outside of the narrative throughout the performance to remind us that we are watching a play. Um, the players talk to the audience, they clap for their fellow performers, they break the fourth wall, all with the intention to remind us that they, the actors in the show, have told this story before. And they will tell it again. Uh, this is so, is like so um, also so interesting to me because it feels very much like um, it, it feels like a very old technique in that like they used to put on shows for kings and like for queens, right? And in um, especially in European back in like Shakespearean time, they would actually talk to the audience mm-hmm. that they were that they were performing for, and and it feels very. Um, 
it, it was written, you know, it's, it's written, it's, it's a very modern show, but it feels like it was set a long time ago and shows used to do this more often. They have a chorus, they have, you know, like, anyway, yeah, what were you going to say? It fits in with the style of the story so well. Yeah, 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 which is, which is, is so fascinating to me. But basically, opening song contains the lyrics, and again, just learn lyrics, liar, lyrics, liar, fascinating. Um, <laughs> just a reminder, <laughs> blew my mind. Uh, it says, quote, it's an old tale from way back when. It's an old song, but we're going to sing it again. It's a sad tale. It's a tragedy. It's a sad song, but we sing it anyway. And that's right at the top of the show. If for people that don't know this story, like they're telling us up front, hey, yo, you're about to get sad. Uh, but they sing it in a really upbeat, fun way. So like you kind of miss it if you're not paying attention, which is, <laughs> which is really good for people that like don't know. It's like sung so happily, but it's like, no, no, no. This is a sad story. It's a tragedy. And yet we sing it anyway. Um, uh, they do this thing for us despite knowing as performers that it's going to end tragically. Um, and, and so in the reprise of that same song at the end of the show, after Orpheus has had his tragic failure, um, they stop in the middle of the performance and instead of singing, they speak in prose to the audience. Uh, the song like is doing its normal thing and then they stop the music and he says, cause here's the thing to know how it ends. And still begin to sing it again, as if it might turn out this time. It tells us that this is a show about seeing hope in the darkness, about this not being the end of the story, but the opportunity for a new beginning, for another chance. And we watch the show, knowing the ending, but hoping, even unreasonably, that that's not the way it goes tonight. That Orpheus won't turn around, that he and Eurydice will get to be together. And though we know in our heart that that isn't the way this story ends, the like thing within us that still says, what if? That's the part of humanity Hadestown wants us to remember. I just love the way it expresses that love can have value even if it doesn't end with like a shiny, happy bells yep. till death do you part. Right. Uh, and I, I also really really love the way Hades Town forces the audience to recognize that so much of what happens to Orpheus and Eurydice happens because of society and the structures they live in there's a big yep. big influence of capitalism in this yes. story and poverty and how it affects people which if you had asked me how that was going to go into the Orpheus and Eurydice story I'd, I'd be like wait excuse me <laughs> um yes it's so good and to, let, let me just say Orpheus was originated or at least in the broadway track i should say by reeve carney and reeve carney is an artist i love but he always plays the ultimate insufferable sad boy yes he does he is the sad soft boy who yep. you still somehow love and so reeve carney's mere existence proves our point <laughs> yes he played um in uh shoot what's that show it's a tv show uh, Penny Dreadful. Penny Dreadful. He plays Dorian Gray. One of the best TV shows that has ever existed. It's so good. And the fact that he plays Dorian Gray tells you everything you need to know about what he's like. Uh, and I didn't put those two together until just recently uh, that he that it's, that's the same person. So anyway, uh, it really spoke to like, oh, I, I get the casting now. And, and you know, th I think that th there's this... Um, I think the thing in the show that, that, that gets me and, and it's sort of just to, you know, reiterate what I, what I said, but in, in maybe in a different way, like there is a thing within us anytime for me, uh, 
I shouldn't say us for me. Anytime I know I'm going into a tragedy that, that I know that the story's not going to end well, but your brain fills in the like, but what if it did? Hmm. Like there's a longing story wise for it to end well, even if you know it's not going to. Um, there's a part of my brain that says like, why this is what would happen if it was a happy ending, right? This is how it would go. And, 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 and as a, it, he's also plays with the, with the medium, with the form, because in a movie, there's not as much of a question because you know the movie and you know, when you hit play, what's going to happen. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know that the movie is made one way and they've cut it, they've edited it and they've, they've put it on the, you know, streaming service or the DVD if you're back in the day. Um, (sighs) and the movie's going to play the way it's going to play. But what's, I think the thing that makes Hades Town so special to me in that, in that way is that it is not a movie. Uh, it is a play that's happening in real time in front of you. Mm -hmm. And these are real people on a stage performing a story. And there's a chance. It could go differently. It could. They could make a choice as actors to do the scene differently. They won't, but they could because they exist. They aren't like tied to, uh, uh, you know, they aren't, they aren't weighed down by the medium. The medium itself would allow them if they, if he gave a different line, if he did something different, the story could change, but he doesn't. And we have to come to terms with that. And we have to accept that like that is. That what if that hope within us is what the that hope within us that that um that the show creates is what the show wants us to carry out of the theater it wants us to carry forward into our life when things go bad when the worst happens that it's not the end. Spencer, I have a play I have to give you. Okay, I ha- what is it? It's called JB by Archibald MacLeish. I buy it every time I see it at a used bookstore, so I have a fair few number of copies. I would I will love give you. It. It is a play that is about the book of Job, but it talks about the actors in the play are like, what if we do it differently now? Let's just, we're just going to make it different. And then they don't and they can't. Oh, it's so good. Ugh, I think you like hope more than I do, I think. Like, I love a sad story. I'm just like, here, like, let's go. I don't, I'm okay with them all just. You know, yeah, I mean, that's that's it though, right? In the same way that like faith requires doubt mm-hmm. tragedy requires hope well don't say things that seem obvious once you say them but i didn't think of that way <laughs> like like i like in that we always are in in a, in there being tragedy there's always our maybe it's just me i don't know but my brain goes like this is the way it could have ended well it didn't but it could have gone well it didn't and that's okay but like that doesn't mean that things are always going to be bad. It means no that No wonder you like multiverses. Yeah, I <laughs> There there's in, in, uh going off of um going into uh <laughs> a personal project in in Alice is missing the game that I made. There there is this uh there is this a TikTok trend that has happened where people have 
basically multiversed Alice. So seriously, in, yeah. For those who don't know, like Alice is missing is a game about a, a, a young woman who goes missing, and you're all playing people in her circle that are trying to find her. The whole game is played via text message, and by the end of the game, you sort of discover what has happened to her. Um, but it's all generated by the players. So like it's GMless. There's no there's no person that is quote unquote running it. You all contribute to the narrative, and it sort of has this ramp up to tension at the or like ramp up of tension to like a climax at the end, and by the end you discover what happened and whether she you know, is alive or what has made it or, and, and things can go a number of ways depending on what happens. And so, um, in that there is a, there's always a tragic ending that you could get. And when you get that ending, you have to know that there are other endings you could have gotten, right? You recognize that that is the case. That's not the way this one turned out, but that is the way it could have turned out. Um, because you know, there are more cards you know, there are other cards. And, and for me, that kind of speaks to like that. So, so anyway, the, 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 the multiverse that they created was like, basically they play the game over and over, always trying to do better, always trying to save her mm. and knowing that things might not turn out that way and not, not just save her, but like deal with their own problems. And so in that same way, this, that is a game of tragedy and sometimes it ends well and sometimes it does not but it is it is a tragic game um for many reasons and and speaks to i think what i feel about tragedy and what i feel about grief in that like grief for me is all of the love that i wish i could give a person that i will never be able to mm. so buried in grief is love and the reason we have grief the reason i have grief is because of the love that I have. And I can't separate those two things. Oh, yeah. All of the almosts that you could have. Ugh. Like, that is what makes tragedy so powerful and interesting. And also, not just... That's what makes me enjoy tragedy. Right? It's mm -hmm. that type two fun. Of, like, I can, I can enjoy this thing because I know that I am... I know what I'm getting into. Do you want to explain Type 2 Fun really quickly, just yeah. in case someone doesn't know? So I don't, I, I, I will explain it the way that I know it. There's probably a more uh, clinical definition or uh, <laughs> academic, I should say, uh, definition of it. But the, the general gist of Type 2 Fun is Type 1 Fun is like going on, uh, is like, uh, is like throwing a party and having fun and like d doing fun things, things that are considered quote unquote classic fun, right? Um, Type two fun is fun where you you don't traditionally see that activity as being uh, joyous, right? So tragedy is type two fun. Um, I think roller coasters in some could be considered by some people to be type two fun and some people by type one fun. That's kind of where the line rides because you are like experiencing your body is experiencing panic <laughs> like yeah. your body's experiencing like it's like oh no i'm going to die and that's why you that fear is what turns into fun right by the end right. of it um and so that's that's sort of i feel like the the transition point into type 2 fun but but a lot of type 2 fun for me is like hey we're gonna we're gonna tell a really sad story or we're gonna tell a really we're gonna go like we're gonna have a really emotional scene and when i run games right like the games i run tend to be more emotionally based they tend to have things that are not they aren't, uh, you know, a big old romp. Like they will have a romp and then all of a sudden, hopefully, if I'm doing them right, we'll gut punch you. And then all of a sudden you're having like 
you're dealing with a thing that's making you question everything and is making you like i don't know have to deal with tragedy and and uh and what it means to feel um uh what it means to feel what it means to have to 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 be emotionally compromised in some way in a way that's safe right Mm. i think that's the thing that makes type two fun fun is that we are experiencing that um sense of dread or that sense of grief uh in an environment in which we feel safe enough to do so and know that we're not going to get hurt i would say this podcast is type two fun it 100%. Sure. I think depending on the topic, absolutely, right? Like like the topic of Medusa is type 2. It's fun. type 2 fun. Right? Yeah. Um yeah. So so anyway, this is this story is a type 2 fun. It, it, we I enjoy it because it is so tragic. I'm going to make us t-shirts that say I am type 2 fun. Yes. <laughs> I we just we just type 2. Uh yeah, type 2 fun. Uh, uh thing <laughs> 1, thing 1 and thing 2 except type 1 and type 2. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so you would really uh, you'll have to tell me if you've read it, but you would sure. really like the play Eurydice by Sarah Rule that I've never read came it. out in 2008. So like Hades Town, it makes Eurydice a whole person, which Beautiful. is really satisfying the eurydice of hades town is so interesting and engaging yeah and sarah rule just said oh you think this story's sad haha watch me which she (laughs) does as a playwright she's just always has done that um but that's an adaptation that's like right on the nose we have hades town we have Eurydice by Sarah Rule, they were both like, hey, we're adapting Orpheus and Eurydice. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's in the name, right? I feel like, um, oh, this isn't in the name either, but um, What Dreams May Come is mm-hmm, also mm-hmm, pretty, mm-hmm. pretty yeah. close. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's just got Robin Williams in it, so, you know, yes. not as much a sad boy, like a happy sad boy well, now. But he's a, but he is a sad boy. I know, but he did the whole comedy thing and then no one knew and then then everybody knew then everybody knew well i mean he dead poet society he was like guys dead poet society i mean i think of like uh goodwill hunting (sighs) uh you know like i think of i mean even jack oh yeah you know or 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 um or hook like all of these are sad boy yeah they're sad they're sad boy comedy there's they're a boy who's so sad that he makes others laugh because he's sad. It's the classic clown. Like, oh. anyway, getting tan- I could talk about Robin Williams for a thousand years. We finally have to talk about Romeo and Juliet. Okay, let's talk about Romeo and Juliet. <sighs> they're young. They're hot. They're naive. They were like, we want to be together. And everyone was like, you should not do that. Hey, look, it's Orpheus and Eurydice. <laughs> <laughs> it's the star-crossed lovers. Yep. It is. And, you know, things, the big difference in Romeo and Juliet is they think they can play with death. They have that kind of teenage understanding yes. of death. Like, we'll just die for a second. It'll be fine. <laughs> and then and then Orpheus and Eurydice, like, I think they understand death much more viscerally. Yes. Although I do think that Orpheus says, what if I just die for a bit? Oh yeah, just I'll just go take a casual jaunt into the underworld. Yeah, he does kind of do that in some ways. He obviously there's a gravitas that I think I interpret anyway that he understands the uh he understands the gravitas of death more. Um more at least from the interpretation, the my interpretation of uh of the myth and it doesn't talk about it in that way, but he he does know the gods, right? At least he knows like yeah, Hades is not somebody 
Right, it's built into the story because of the understanding in the culture. The understanding of the culture where Romeo and Juliet are kind of like, no, we could just we could get away with it, right? They're they're and I don't we never get ages with Orpheus and Eurydice. We just know that they're young and beautiful, right? Right. So they could be a bit older or a bit younger. Right. Uh, we know he is a man. We know he is a man because he's already gone on some journeys by the right. time. So description of man, we know he's not like a a young young boy. Boy, and 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 Romeo is distinctly a boy. <sighs> I remember when I thought Romeo and Juliet were older. Like, when I was young, yeah. reading it in school, and I was like, oh, they're adults. No. <laughs> they're like they're like 15, 14, 13? What are they? Older than that, probably. Yeah. Yes. Very young. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. There's probably canon age. I don't know what it is. But that is... But they are young. They are young. They are children. Um, so, <laughs> they, they make decisions like children make decisions, right? And we see that happening. But I think that th- there is... There is so much... I mean, it's very obvious, right, that Shakespeare took inspiration from this like there's he loves to take inspiration from the greeks he loves to steal and you know i i love that for him um uh tangent uh do you do you think he was real do you think shakespeare is real william shakespeare yeah yeah i do think the william shakespeare we know from stratford upon avon was a real man the thing that people don't take into account i think a lot in that time is that Plays took a really, really long time to be published, sometimes mm. years, sometimes decades. And yeah. that style of theater was very collaborative. So when people think, you know, one man couldn't possibly have come up with all these ideas, A, yes, probably he was just a brilliant man, but also he collaborated with his theater. Right, right, right. And right. they were, and that form of collaboration did involve writing lines and helping come up with ideas. So, yeah, we even see that in Midsummer, right? Like we see that happening in Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, yes. So yeah, it's interesting to get a little peek of the playwriting process through the inception <laughs> of of through the through the inception style. Uh, you know, there's a play within a play happening. And I don't think that collaboration takes away from authorship. Lots of wonderful no, artists no, collaborate, not. myself included. But it does contextualize it a bit better. Yeah. So yes, I'm firmly in the there could have been one man camp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I th- I think so too. It's 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 a uh, it's something that I know is hotly contested. So, but I think taking inspiration from people knew these myths, right? So like right. he took that myth and very much was like, okay, let's 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 modernize it in the same like they did that with Romeo and Juliet, and then West Side Story did that. Uh, then uh, Sondheim <laughs> did it with West Side Story. We're just seeing all these great artists stealing from other great artists, which is. So fun. Do you want to talk about a crappy author? Because you mentioned this. Yeah. So I had a whole thing in here. I you tell me. Uh, you tell me how much I'm uh, allowed to. Uh, <laughs> I'm allowed to curse here, but um. Uh, uh, she's a turf, and we don't like her. I was gonna say uh, screw turfs, and uh, we do not condone. We condone uh, J.K. Uh, we're gonna talk about Harry Potter. We do not condone uh, the views. Uh, the recent <laughs> no. discovery of views uh, of J.K. Rowling. But um, anyway, uh, I think that the one point that I didn't realize until I dove into this uh, was that Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone has a very clear nod to Orpheus and Eurydice. Um, when the trio are attempting to sneak by Hagrid's three-headed dog, Fluffy, uh, on their way to find the stone, um, that just like Orpheus plays the lyre for Cerberus, um, there's also a three-headed dog, uh, <laughs> Fluffy, that uh, only playing a harp. Um, can can uh, put him to sleep, and so um, 
there's a very clear analog for them going into the trap door in the ground below Fluffy and entering the quote-unquote underworld, where then, of course, if we know the story of Harry Potter, it goes into this journey that then ends up facing, like, death itself, right, in, in, in Voldemort. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, so that was, a, that was, when I was reading that, I was like, oh, oh, that was stolen. That was very clearly, that is exactly, it's exactly where that comes from. I didn't realize that before then. Harry Potter includes a lot of references to mythology. I recently listened to the entire series on audiobook again, because my friend, uh, basically a friend of a friend had downloaded it, so mm-hmm. I had access to it without buying it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Because yeah. you don't get my money. No, you don't get my money, yeah. But I did listen to it again because so many people reference Harry Potter to me when I talk about mythology, and I yep. didn't really remember why. Um, so, yeah, no, you're 100% right. Yeah, yeah, tons of, tons of mythological aspects, and this is just one that I didn't, I didn't put together, and I should have. I knew, I knew, I knew the three-headed dog was from mythology, and I knew Orpheus's story, but I never, I never put two and two together. So anyway, let's talk about somebody that I do like, Ooh. which is Neil Gaiman. Yes. Uh, uh, in Neil Gaiman's Sandman graphic novels, uh, there's a whole like Orpheus and Eurydice sort of thing that that shows up, um, uh, which is which is interesting. And then the other place that it sort of has permeated um, that maybe is not quite as obvious as those. Um, is the 2001 Baz Luhrmann movie musical Moulin Rouge. Uh, Okay. Yes. Okay. Tell tell me. Tell me more. So Moulin Rouge is very clearly drawing inspiration from La Boheme, um, which is where, uh, I believe, where uh, where Rent also draws its inspiration. But there are strong ties to the myth that that the authors themselves talk about. So if you haven't seen Moulin Rouge, um, and if you haven't, definitely... Uh, go watch it. It's a wild movie. Um, <laughs> it's 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 a it's a classic uh, Baz Luhrmann wild movie, uh, but it's very good. Uh, it's about a poor Bohemian poet named Christian who comes to Paris to follow the Bohemian Revolution and ends up falling in love with the beautiful actress and courtesan named Satine, who performs at a theater called the Moulin Rouge and has through these performances already captured the eye of the Duke of Monroth. Um, this is sort of classic star-crossed lovers territory. Uh, you know, where, um, we have this like young, uh, poor poet, uh, and then, uh, he falls in love with this beautiful actress, um, and, uh, and sex worker, um, uh, who works at this theater that is like out of his you know out of his league in some mm-hmm. respects and um and, and and she's already supposed to marry somebody else uh and so that's sort of like the star-crossed lover thing but the place that um that, that we really reference uh the myth here is um in the book singing a new tune um by Lerman's co-writer Craig Pierce he says the Moulin Rouge becomes a symbol for the underworld at large Satine getting out of the Moulin Rouge becomes symbolic for her getting out of the underworld someday so the writer uh, was very much like hey we're seeing the Moulin Rouge as being as being uh, where Hades is like the underworld right as being the land of the dead and like and uh, Christian um like our Orpheus analog here, who is a poet, uh, a lyricist, a singer, um, attempts to save this woman that he loves from the underworld. Um, and so that is very, very light, but, but, but clearly via, you know, uh, Pierce's book that he wrote, 
a nod to this myth, which is something I I I only I, it was something that I I knew that Romeo I knew that um, Moulin Rouge reminded me of Romeo and Juliet, and that they're like star-crossed lovers who shouldn't mm-hmm. be together, and like and then when I started putting two and two together, that like oh, and all of that sort of derives at least part in part from uh, Orpheus. Uh, and that came full circle. I, I I realized why I why I love Moulin Rouge and Romeo and Juliet and West Side Story and obviously <laughs> they're all just the same story. They're all just the same thing, just told in different ways. You love star-crossed lovers. I do. I think because it's romantic <laughs> and because it's sad. Spencer is a romantic, sad, sad boy. soft boy. <laughs> this is accurate. It's so true. Okay, so I didn't actually know that. The Moulin Rouge was an analog for the underworld when I pulled this picture, but I pulled another piece of art. Oh, yeah. So this is called Orpheus with a Harp Playing to Pluto and Persephone in the Underworld by Jan Brugel. I hope that's how you say his name. It's from 1594. So this one's old. Yeah. And to me, this looks more like the Moulin Rouge than how I would think the underworld in this story. It does. It does look like the Moulin Rouge. I mean... There's a lot going on here. Uh, it go. I'm sure you, you can post this to Instagram too, so people mm-hmm. can see it. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, like, go look at it, uh, so you can join along because there's there's a lot happening in this in this painting. Um, yeah, I mean, clearly we have Orpheus uh, standing in front of the throne uh, here, but there are so many people that are. What are they doing? And like creatures. Like, what are these little creatures? So many creatures. There's a lizard creature wearing, like, a little sleep hat. Oh, my God. I would die for him. He is my favorite. I love him. Spencer, you almost made me do a spit take at my <laughs> microphone. He, it's, a, it's a lizard wearing a sleep hat. A little lizard boy. I think he's got wings, so maybe he's like a little dragon. I think I think he does have wings. It looks like either a big old spike thing on his back or wings. And then there's like just I guess it's the underworld, right? So that's so these are supposed to maybe be demons. And there's three like snake haired women, which maybe are the Furies, oh, but where look are like those? Medusa. They're just behind Orpheus. Oh yes, there are. Whoa. And there's a burning fire area that looks like a carnival that just got lit on fire, even though it can't be. It a can't carnival. be a carnival, but it looks <laughs> it looks like a Ferris wheel and a and a roller coaster. That is bizarre. And then there's like a fairy with wings right yeah. above the women with snakes for and hair. There's a mountain that looks like a pig in the background. Whoa! I didn't even realize it looked like a pig, but it totally looks like a pig. I- Okay, so I just pulled this because it, it's buck wild. And I imagine Orpheus going down into the underworld and it be, being very empty and quiet yeah. because so often the underworld seems to be described with shades and a lot of nothingness. Yeah. And this is him having to go down and just be greeted by absolute insanity. This is him trying to play in a nightclub, right? Like, <laughs> like there's a nightclub of people talking and he's trying to get their attention. And yeah, it's... Uh, it's so funny. And I think there's a naked man riding on a walrus in the water. I was just I was just going to comment on the naked man riding <laughs> a walrus. Uh yes. There's, there's another naked man riding a frog, I think. I love all of this. <laughs> uh there's a there's a person in a pit getting stabbed. Oh my god. 
Do you see that at the very bottom, yeah, bottom right? Yeah. So, you know, there's plenty, there's plenty of variety for all of you who uh, prefer different activities in your underworld. There's also people <laughs> like swimming. Like there's a watering, there's like an ocean here, which is yeah. not what I think of when I think of the underworld. It's like a cruise ship. There's all different activities. Swimming's <laughs> at 8 a.m., fire carnivals at noon. <laughs> wow. I, I just like this because... We imagine him and his music Im- controlling people now, imagining his music stopping all of this. Yeah. Stopping the madness. Uh, yeah, there's, I mean, there's so many things we could talk about this. There's, there's literally, I think, a thousand things in this photo that I could talk about. Uh, <laughs> is that a, is there a water wheel? Yeah, I'm also looking, is there a bird but that's landing on smoke? Like, what's all that green miasma stuff? I know. I can't quite tell, but. <laughs> Spencer and I are broken. By this, this this is breaking me. But uh, you know, it, it, I I think what it does capture right is the chaos of the underworld, um, which even in even when thinking about the underworld as a as a place that is more desolate, uh, and in in the in the Hades Town interpretation, it is quite literally like capitalism right like it is it's capitalism it's capitalism it's a, it's a factory uh my hell is there. capitalism yeah it's a factory and so it's a you know uh, there, there's a um what's that called a uh an assembly line right of like things and and um and, and this kind of takes a different approach in saying that like no it's chaos it's absolute unleashed chaos <laughs> <laughs> Which, when, when you talk about everybody who's died and, like, all the demons and things, it does track, right? That, like, there'd be fires everywhere and uh, and and people getting stabbed and people riding frogs and, like, it's... But I don't know that we have a ton of demons in the ancient Greek underworld. Like, Bruegel paints like this. This is such a classic him painting. But this is also post-Christianity. So this is the right. hell of the Christians put onto the myth of the greeks yeah. so like the the snake with the sleep hat does not seem super ancient greek to me you know it, it's all it only seems that way in that it is very strange and i love I it love very it. much those two things it shares with greek mythology <laughs> but but besides that yes it is uh it is not it feels like it is very uh um it's very influenced by the Christian hell that we're used to. It's worth noting that the only women I can see have dresses, but the dresses are pulled down to their waist. So it's tits mm. out always in Orpheus and Eurydice. <laughs> yeah, in the underworld. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, so I wasn't supposed to write a story this week. That was Spencer's job. Yeah, um, I was going to write one. And and he, well, you wrote the myth. <laughs> well, I wrote the myth after you wrote the story because you were like, I have done a thing and I don't know what I've done. And I'm sorry I stole your story. And I was like, Rowan, you fly free. <laughs> I feel kind of bad. Um, never feel bad for writing anything ever. Uh, it's beautiful. I can't wait to, I only read the first like four paragraphs in the beat and I was like, okay, I can't ruin this for myself. So, uh, <laughs> you, you do your thing. Uh, I'm, I'm so happy to get a, to get a story from you. So this is of course centering Eurydice. So Hell yes. <laughs> All right. 
It is sung that time slows when one falls in love. When one finds their twin flame, it is as if the sun rises moment by ever stretching moment within their gaze, and Aphrodite grants you an eternity in an instant. Through the rest of your days, you may always look back upon your meeting and curl up within your memory like a blanket, a wreath, armor. Orpheus. I see his hair blowing in the breeze, his hands hardened, his jaw clenched, and every little eyelash reflecting the sunshine. I thought, this is where my love begins. Each time I go back, I can parcel out something new. The curve of his spine, the iron of his stance, the bow of his lips, the lyre tucked in his arms like a cat. All my life's appreciation in a second, maiden hope and mother's comfort all laid out in this instant image of a man. Music, in the first moment, new, in every remembering thereafter as familiar as breathing, a heartbeat, a melody, lyrics, and the very air quivering for each fresh verse. A musk, warm and hot. Mouth-watering, toe-curling, earth-invigorating, shoulder-dropping. My love, a mere fragment of forever. It is sung that time slows when one is in peril. When one finds herself on the edge of death, the outcome known only to the gods and time stretched for you as the fates measure out the very thread of your life. Battle. Birth breath. I was dancing in the wood when the fraying fibers of my life were pulled, taut, and cut. I recall it perfectly. I had by now learned from Orpheus the way to hear music everywhere. We spun and leapt to the wind in the trees, the laughter of my friends, our graceless, graceful patter on the soft grasses and snap of sticks beneath our leaping feet. We nymphs of the earth, sea, and stone reveling in our own delights. I thought, this is when I am most alive. The snake which took me thought the same, perhaps. I felt its bite like a burn and saw in its eyes the same hatred cursed Medusa must have known for Athena. I did not know then as I lingered in the slow crawling of venom through my consciousness, that my killer died too. Beneath my feet, in my twirling and laughing, one misstep and two dead in the cool shade. Then, no more dancing, no more wind, and no more laughter. In my last waking, I saw Orpheus crest the hill. He was panic-stricken and did not see the smile on my face which I held for him as some wan comfort. Perhaps he will come back to that memory one day and know the gift I left him. My last thought, what silence in this world without my Orpheus? And then, what silence unto death bears Eurydice? No mortal has yet sung of the way that death does not slow. There are no savored seconds for the shades of the underworld. Hades' domain moves along, as for me, time never has. You are granted each moment once, 
and never again. All your knowing viewed through a baffling mist, no future in which to burrow or weave oneself a hope, no past with which to understand who one is anyway. The dead exist in a terrifying present, with all but the hateful forever out of reach. When I followed Orpheus up the great long pass to the gates of the underworld, I felt Hope come upon me step by careful step, like waking it crept into the shade of me and I began to imagine the feel of sunshine and the cries of the birds and the embrace, oh gods above, the unending, unyielding, lifelong love of Orpheus. Years snatched back for us to while away the time in worshipful devotion to ourselves alone, I thought. This is when I am saved. He could not hear me behind him, for sound is time and time does not exist in the underworld. Clever Persephone and her seasons must understand this. But Orpheus, my miracle of music, could not but doubt the lack of our shared rhythm. Turning too soon, just a beat too early, And now I cannot even recall his face when he looked upon me with that joy of our victory. The last moment of us was so quick that it lived only in the present. Contract broken. I am left for dead. I cannot remember the daylight. I cannot remember his smile. Death truly is the unmaking of time. I will never again, nor ever have I. I am unknown but to the memories of those above, the last pieces of myself slowed into relics of loving, living, and dying, which I myself cannot hold. But there is one thought I do have, though all else is lost to me. A word. Orpheus and then the softest whisper of music in a melancholy time. I dare not speak it and give this secret away, for in knowing him, I surely know something of myself, and were it gone, I would have only silence here in death. Orpheus, Orpheus, oh, Orpheus. In him I am saved. So good. Thank you. So good. I am just so fascinated by this idea that Eurydice, who's always seems to be portrayed as someone who's very reflective. She's very thoughtful. She cares a lot about Orpheus and she just perceives him so wholly. I, I just am interested in this idea of her that alive analyzes things and goes back over them and really savors them and then in death untethered from time just has no ability to do that and when you get rid of past and present what are you left with yeah i mean look i i think that there's (laughs) you bring up a really interesting sort of um world building thing here right which is that like when we lose when when we lose life, we also lose lose memory in some way. Uh, mm-hmm. And and that when when I think about 
memory over time, right? Like my earliest memories that I have are so loose. They're like, um, they're like tea, right? They're like, I can taste (laughs) just the hint of them, uh, Mm. in all the water. Um, I don't remember the image or I remember the image, but not the sound. I don't remember it in motion. I just remember like the one frame. And so time does something to memories. And I don't know if, if it like if, if, scientifically or whatever, it's because every time we remember something, we're rewriting it. Right. I don't know if like, oh, that's like, why, mm, but like, Spencer. there is something that's interesting about how with time comes a dilution of that memory. But when you, but outside of time, what does that memory become? Because it no longer has, it, t- time now exists in all, it's like present all around you, right? And like, so, or, or, or vacant, I, whatever it is, like we, we can metaphor all day about like what the, we can like mm-hmm. talk in, you know, metaphors all day about what, what time is in the underworld. But like the effect that that has on memory became so fascinating to me via this story, right? It, it, how does that affect the way in which we perceive things? And do we perceive things that are, if time does not exist, are we perceiving in both the past and the future at the same time, right? Or does, is there, is there a, is there a past and future, uh, to, to be able to perceive at the same time? Are we sitting in a, in a fourth dimension, right? Have you ever read Flatland? No. Oh, interesting. Okay. This is very much a tangent, but that's okay. Uh, Flatland is a book written in the 1800s um, by, oh God, I'm going to draw a blank on the name. Uh, a Romance of Many Dimensions by Edwin A. Abbott. Yes, Edwin A. Abbott. Um, and it, what year was it? You have it up there? Uh, it was first published in 1884. Okay, 1884. Fascinating uh, story. It's a novella, so I think it's like 90 pages. And it's about a shape. It's about a shape that perceives everything in two dimensions. So he goes about his whole life. Oh, and then he meets a three-dimensional shape. And then he meets a three-dimensional shape, and the three-dimensional shape pulls him into the third dimension. And now suddenly he can see... And now suddenly he can see inside of his house, inside of his partner. He can see into all of the world that he exists in and he no longer sees like people he has to feel around each side of them to know whether they're a square or a circle or a rectangle or a you know pentagon or whatever and like when he gets pulled up and out he can suddenly see oh everything i was feeling actually has sides and every everything that we've made is like in it's flat and i see like when he's looking at the in the in flatland in the in the 2d space when he's seeing a ball he sees it or a, a sphere i should say he sees it as a line that keeps growing from longer to shorter and longer mm-hmm. to shorter because it keeps uh uh bouncing not bouncing but like uh, oscillating up and down on the single line of perception that he has and so he sees the like very tip of the sphere and then it moved down to the center of the sphere and then the tip of the sphere again and so that's causing this like weird undulating line that has never existed in his world anyway being pulled out of that dimension and into the third dimension um it changes his world entirely right like he cannot go back to the way he was before and so then when he returns he like has to deal with the fact that he has seen he he knows life exists in a way that that is so fundamentally different from the way he saw it before that to return to that life is um 
is is a burden and and so he sees space in the same way that i think edwin was uh was trying to uh was trying to get us to think about space time right like what if we moved out of the third dimension that we are in and and could see the fourth dimension could see all of time at once how would that change us and that's kind of what interstellar does right the movie interstellar like it does that it shows that for us anyways these are all tangents into how time affects us right no it makes it makes total sense i haven't read the book but i had a teacher go through basically that journey i i think maybe hopefully i hope my understanding is correct i think time is the dimension that really defines so much of our lives like of everything else we define everything by time you have to be somewhere at a certain time you have to accomplish something by a certain time you know age and what have you and there, okay, there's this horribly sad song called Where Have You Been? And it's by Kathy Matea. And it's about Alzheimer's and it will mm-hmm. break your whole heart. But in the re- in the ending of the song, you kind of learn that the this couple who are very old and both have Alzheimer's have forgotten each other, but they still recognize each other. Like they don't know, oh, wow. they can't remember anything about their lives, but they, they recognize that they love each other. Yeah. And that's a song, but I, I'm, if you take away time and all the time that Orpheus and Eurydice shared, and maybe they were so young and in love and it was frivolous, or maybe no matter what is gone, their love is still there and it is a constant. Right. Even if you don't know each other, even in forgetting, the love is still there. I, I like the idea of... Even though we say, you know, he's just a frivolous boy who's always had everything, you know, she never gets a character in the originals. I like the idea of there being a true love that is unaffected. Yeah, I mean, it carries through uh, his entire being from the moment he meets her. And and that love remains the constant when everything else changes. I think of the, I can't remember where I, where I saw this, but, um, somebody talking about how, you know, it's always hard to, to, to contextualize time, uh, in our world, uh, in a way that we could see it like space, right? But if we, if we are attempting that, um, there's a, uh, a, a, I think a, a video or a diagram, can't remember what it was, but basically if we think about like an apple, right? And, um, and we imagine, uh, time as though it is a slice, uh, is a, is a tiny slice of that, of that apple, um, that we are perceiving. Like we are, we are basically seeing one tiny slice of the apple at a time. And when we get to the beginning of that apple, it's a tiny little piece, right? It's like a, it's like because the apple is round, again, same thing as like Flatland, right? Definitely influenced by that. Like we get to the beginning and there's a tiny little piece. And then as time goes on and we move, left to right across that apple like we are seeing we go from just having the skin of that apple to having a little bit of the skin and the juice and, and like the 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 inside and then we get to like this longer piece that is you know the skin on the outsides and then like a tiny sh- uh, shard of of the apple and then we move into the core and the core gets harder and then we hit seeds and then suddenly we believe am i seeds because we, as time, are perceiving where we are in that apple. We're we're in the core. We're just in a harder part. Am I harder because of that? Am I am I changed because of this? And then, like you know, as, and then as you proceed back through it, you get through the core, and then you're back in the soft part again. And then all the way to the end, until you're again just one slice of skin. 
And, and the important thing, that's very esoteric, but the important thing to take from that is that you are never just the slice of skin at the end. You are never just the seed or just the, the hardened core. You're the apple. Did you just describe the 12-step hero's journey by Joseph Campbell? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not sure. But but the point is that like we see ourselves in life as being that sliver. Yeah. Right? We see us as being like, oh, I am a seed. Like I'm like, where I am in that apple is the seed. So I am a seed right now. And it's like, no, you're not the seed. You are the apple as a whole. You just happen to be viewing the part of yourself in this moment that is the seed. And in that same way, like we look at the tragedy of, of, uh, Orpheus and Eurydice and we see the, you know, the, the we see the moment in time, like, w- we see the the moments in time where like they met and then they were together and then they lost each other and then they're back together and then they lose each other again. But that's not like the the, the whole of it is that they are in love, that they love each other. Hmm. And that is that is like the that's the apple, right? Like that that love is the apple. That's the thing that permeates through everything. Um and and so in that way, like we can appreciate every piece of it. But for me, taking it as the whole of like, this is a story about somebody who loves somebody else so much that they will do anything for them. Um, coming back to the beginning, like that is, that is the value in it. And, and hopefully what we see it, what, what Orpheus saw, uh, when he arrived back to be with her in the underworld, right? Is that like he, he can now look on that and live with her in eternity, even though they're dead. I think you did it, Spencer. What I do? I think that's the thing. <laughs> Is that the thing? I just want to leave them with eternity. <laughs> I don't want to analyze them out of that. I love yeah. it. You just left them in this happy little forever. Yeah, I mean they're in the underworld, so you know. Okay. Yes, I mean we, some we could again information this into badness, but I choose not to. <laughs> hey, you're turning into me. <laughs> Listen, I promised Tracy while she was gone, you and I would turn this into a sad boy podcast. We are type two fun only, baby. We have done it. <laughs> Remember when we thought there was going to be a different topic we were going to cover? Nope. Bah! <laughs> Not anymore. Not anymore, I don't. Uh, oh, Spencer and I like sad stories. <laughs> we do love sad stories. Well, that was a beautiful story that you told. And uh, I just want you to I want you to feel appreciated. For the work that you did is very, very good. Yes. You're, I do feel appreciated. I think maybe your your compliments count for like triple. Like when a teenager compliments you, like it's that <laughs> level of value. Intense. Uh, it's so funny. I, I was just uh, I was just with, I was uh, doing a favor for a friend where I was t- uh, taking care of uh, their kid for a couple hours, their six-year-old kid. And at one point we were like hanging out and he was like, you're a pretty cool guy. And I was like, oh my God, why does that feel better than anybody I've ever known telling me that I was cool. This kid knows nothing about me and just like had met me for, it's like, so they're so honest. And then, you know, then he's like, did you know that the sun, you know, the earth revolves around the sun. And then he jumped from one couch to the other. And I'm like, all right, this kid speaks his mind. And he just spoke. He just said I was pretty cool. He's not filtered anyway. Yes. Is fascinating. Spencer, you're the six-year-old complimenting me right now. <laughs> I'll take it. I just turned 30. I will take that. Happy 30. <laughs> 
Um, it's the same thing as being six if you just talk about the Earth revolving around the sun and yeah. break down spheres. <laughs> totally. Look, we play role-playing games, and that's basically playing imagination. Uh, I play role-playing games for a living, so my job is to play imagination all day, every day. Uh, so yes, living in that, living in that childlike wonder. Hey, speaking of which, I'm going to actually use you as an excuse to recap why we do this on this podcast, because it's been, oh, I think 50 episodes since we explained it. Um, at the end of every episode, we do Tell Me Something Good, which originated because many, many years ago, I broke up with my longtime boyfriend at the time. And my dad, who lives across the country, was worried about me, um, and he sent me an Amazon Echo because he thought I would Aww. be lonely. Um, and I guess robots will keep you company. I don't know. It was both horrifying and the kindest thing ever. Um, <laughs> and so I learned that if you say, hey, Echo, tell me something good, she will just give you a random fact that is wholesome. Wow, really? From the, the earth, yes. I do that a lot. I like that it's from the earth, too. That's a very important point. <laughs> From, distinction from that you've made yes <laughs> um i think it's so cute it got me through some bad times so now sometimes i just tell people like hey tell me something good and thus yes <laughs> it is born on our podcast so like the uh, like a talking home device hey spencer tell me something good <laughs> uh well i'm gonna bring it back full circle uh I just turned 30 and I had a birthday mm. party and we were talking about the beginning. Uh, I don't know whether that'd be cut out or not, but it won't be. We Beautiful. Uh, I got <laughs> to be with some of my favorite people all in one place. And, you know, I think that there's a value in that in general, uh, just because, you know, we, we are social creatures, but given the state of the world, the last couple of years and also it being the day that I sort of broke into the time in my life that all of media has told me the time it's the time that I should be having an existential crisis mm. uh you know we look at like tick tick boom and uh what else is there uh company uh, all of these shows. I don't know why they're all musicals, but everybody, everybody <laughs> describes every it. product <laughs> every that's product. trying to tell you sell yes, you something. Yes, that thirty is the time when you should feel like you are having a life crisis. And I realized, surrounded by all the people that I love, that I wasn't. That I was happy, and I finally felt like I had the life that I wanted. Um, I just celebrated my ten year anniversary this year with my with my wife. So like. Uh, we've been married for four, but, uh, but, but together for 10. And, um, and so I love that, you know, all of like that being like a marking and we did that, we celebrated that in March. So like, and, and my birthday was April 6th. So like having just a, a cascade of things leading up to this moment of like, oh, this is, this is what being sa satisfied with being like happy feels like in that way. Um, there were, there was a, a distinct moment that night where I felt that I think for the very first time in my life. Um, so yeah, that was my something good. Rowan, tell me something good. Whew, I'm sorry. I'm still living in your satisfaction. That's <laughs> so beautiful. Actually words diminish it. That's, that makes me very happy. Um, 
especially because time. They try to time. Tries to. People try to tear you down with time all the time. <laughs> and <laughs> I think if it can work to your advantage, then even better. My something good this week is that yesterday I just started a new Pathfinder campaign. Amazing. And I don't get to play Pathfinder very often, so it is very hilarious when I think I'm doing a Pathfinder rules thing, but my brain defaults to 5e. Yep. Um, uh, it's so annoying. I feel so bad for my DM. But it's an all-girls campaign, and two of our players are brand new to D&D and TTRPGs in general, and one of them is our composer for this podcast, Taylor Ash. Amazing. And it is so it's so awesome playing with new characters. Yeah. It, p- players, new players. <laughs> it's so awesome playing with new players, but one of the reasons specifically is because their characters are just, I feel like new people just come up with things that feel so inventive yeah. because they maybe don't know the rules as well. And so they're unhindered and it makes everyone think differently, or at least me. And I'm so excited by it. Um, yeah, one of my favorite things is playing with people that have never played anything before. Like, <sighs> it's this, and, and, and it's funny because the, when they get it, like when it clicks, it's magic, right? Because it's like, oh man, I can do anything. Like it's a, it's a very open, yeah. Except playing with you for the first time will probably ruin them for any other game. <laughs> I've played with you, my guy. It's too good. Well, you met you met our friend uh, Cat. Yes, I love Cat. Who had only ever played D anD D years ago with a super gatekeeper uh, uh, DM. Get out and. Um, and sort of got like completely turned off by it. But Kat's incredible. And so uh, our mutual cat and my mutual friend, Jaden, who I used to work with, invited Kat to uh, a birthday party um, that, that Jaden was having and that I was jamming Blades in the Dark for. Um, and Kat jumped in, was like, look, I've tried, I've done this kind of thing before. I played D&D before and like I kind of got burned and like I don't, you know, anyway, long story short was like, I don't really feel confident basically. And we're not confident, but like, you know, I had a bad experience basically. Right. Empowered. And we were like, yeah, I don't feel empowered. And, uh, and had this incredible moment where like the very first scene we shared was this emotional, like very deep um, flashback of their character and grounded both of us in, uh, I was gymming for, for them and they just put their whole heart into it. And was like, Oh, you got burned by somebody who couldn't, you were Mm. probably better than they were right. Like Mm. at this and you had never done it before. And like that moment of realization of like, Oh, you're meant, to do this like you're really good at this um but was completely unhindered by stuff and now plays in a weekly campaign with me uh was this was this incredible reminder for me of how important it is for us to sometimes just take a step back and like and um come at things with fresh eyes because they have made one of the most compelling beautiful tragic again type two fun characters that (laughs) i've ever played with um, all out of that, you know, that fresh perspective on the game. So anyway, sorry for the tangent, but like it is a beautiful thing. 
Uh, no, it's amazing because now because of you, Kat and I are friends. Kat came over to play Bioshock with me the other day. I'm obsessed with them and I just want to hang out with them all the time. I'm so happy about that. They're so great. Uh, so wonderful. And I'm so glad that you two got to meet because uh, you're both wonderful. So um, I'm a little bit of a fangirl uh, for Kat. <laughs> um, I think we all are at this point. Yeah, truly. Um the other thing that I love about home games, and I wasn't in a home game for a minute and it was killing me, is that like someone came into the game the other day and I don't remember who said it, but was like, we're all going to do accents even though they're bad, right? Like even. Oh, yeah. And it's so, it, we all just laughed. And we're like, what? Yeah, whatever. And I am who am in the gaming world. Like I do accents and I love being at a table where everyone's like i'm gonna do a thing and maybe fail okay and everyone's like hell yeah so we're all gonna do that now yeah like everybody felt empowered even folks who were like oh my god i would never do an right 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 now trying voices that they would never try in their home games just can be so fun and silly and like hang outy in a way that is just it when it goes right back to kids playing pretend, yep, I'm like, yes, here we are. We have arrived. <laughs> it it's so awesome. Anyway, yeah. my my GM is also a newer DM, sure, and she's just killing it. Um, she's the artist. What, holy crap! It's Jamie. She's the artist for our podcast. This oh, is very podcast heavy. It's very <laughs> podcast heavy. I'm a fan. Uh, that's so awesome. Well, yeah, that, I think that you know, there's uh, especially in home games that you are surrounded by people that you feel safe with, right? Mm-hmm. Which I, it's the, is the most important for me in a home game is like, I need to be with people that I can, that I can be silly or like mess up with. And, and the medium itself is so fascinating because it is a, it's, it's such an impermanent medium mm-hmm. compared to most other things, right? Like even this podcast, we were recording it and it will live. And when you use the RPG medium to create uh, a podcast or to create a show, it goes from being impermanent to permanent. Um, and, but, but there is a, there is a magic that I, um, is the reason why I don't do a lot of actual plays, uh, why I don't do a lot of like filmed or recorded shows, uh, in, in the, in the RPG space, because for me, the magic lies at the table with all of us in the moment, making decisions, trying things, failing. Um, but experiencing that emotion together and then it disappearing and us only having that memory, that shared experience together, uh, as it's, as the artifact, right? You, you kind of hit the nail on the head. I, the time the lifespan actually of content is something that really stresses me out. I think about, you know, we put out a podcast each week and I think about how long it lives in people's awareness versus famous paintings or what have you. There's, there's just this constant turnover today and impermanent art is so fantastic. Like I grew up with parents. I'm very lucky who are artists. And if a piece came out badly, if they work a lot with wood, they just threw it in the fire. Like next week we had a bonfire and it was gone. Cool. Fine. It's done. Yeah. And uh, I spend a lot, whenever I go to the beach, I always do drawings on the sand Mm -hmm. so that they can get washed away and I can remember how useful that is to me. And you just, 
I forget that sometimes. And you just hit the nail on the head of like how important it is to have things that are ephemeral. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing too, like having, for me, I value the ephemeral, but I value the ephemeral specifically when that ephemeral is shared with other people, because then the thing that remains, do you know what the Kuleshov effect is? I'm going to stop myself. That the Kuleshov effect is? I don't know it by name. Okay. So there's this concept, and, and I promise this applies, and I, this is a total tangent. Uh, I say that all the time. Okay. I never doubt you. So you can just go ahead. I'm walking up the hill trusting that you are leading me in the right direction. Thank you. Uh, well, I'm not. I'm tr- you can try not to look back. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> there is a thing called the Kuleshov effect in in film uh, and TV and and the medium um, of filmmaking, and essentially it is uh, the idea that well, I'll talk about what 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 he, what Kuleshov did. Basically, took uh, an audience and rolled a uh, piece of film that had a man's face and then a hamburger. Right. I don't remember exactly what it was, but basically like a man's face and a hamburger. And then also rolled another piece of film for a different audience that was a man's face and a grave. Okay. I, yeah, okay. Oh, keep telling this. Right. And so, so, and those two people, <laughs> those two audiences interpreted that it was the same man's face. The man's face did not change, but the, the image that came after it did change. Right. And so the, the, thi- the, the thought that existed or the, the idea that existed was not the result result of one of those images or the other it was the result of both right like the man is hungry or the man is grieving and um that does not that that thing does not exist it's just the juxtaposition of two things that makes that third thing exist Right. Right. That's sort of cool. Effect is like the juxtaposition of two images creates a third image in the mind of the viewer. Right. That's kind of like the, the clinical, um, more academic, uh, uh, explanation. But that applies here to me because to, to, to what I love about these kinds of things, because what it means is that that game or that thing doesn't exist anymore it only exists as the memory between the people that were there and so by us forging a memory of a thing that only we know creating a a story or a quote-unquote piece of content that was only for us it creates a bond between us that i feel is often undermined when something is created for content. Because mm. then there is a third thing. There's That thing does exist, right? All of a sudden it does exist for the world for them for the, for it to be consumed. And not that's a bad thing, but the, in my experience, the like, the bond that I've created via those kinds of games because of that experience that we now only share together is different when it can be consumed by other people and criticized and looked at, uh, you know, with a, with a closer lens and all these kinds of things. Um, there's magic there that's lost, at least for me. As a content creator, actually as an artist, um, (laughs) I am always trying to remind myself that the, audience is just as much a collaborator as Mm -hmm. anyone else that I'm working with. Yep. So yeah, when you add the audience into the equation, it changes things. I think you're absolutely right. You're 
You're absolutely right. Okay, wait. So we're going to make an agreement. Okay. You and I count as one entity for the purposes cool, of cool, this. Cool, 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 cool. Um, and uh, we're the the man's face and the audience, everyone who's listening right now, either has to be the hamburger or the grave um, because we're not <sighs> accepting a third you know, element here. We all know which one the audience <laughs> is going to be out of those two choices. We told the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. They got to be the grave. Okay. Sorry, audience. We're making you the grave. <laughs> We're the face and you're the grave because we don't want to have a third point in this triangle. <laughs> you know what? Let's be honest. They're probably the face. We're probably the grave. Yeah, the face yeah and that's the grave. The- <laughs> <laughs> you're so right. <laughs> we love being your grave. <laughs> We're proud to be your grave. Guys, Spencer Stark came on the pod and I, he said yes the second I asked him. Of course. I've peaked. I've peaked. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was I was a fan, so I'm so glad to be here. Uh, and thank you for the work you do here. Truly, some of my favorite uh, uh, moments, uh, narrative moments, podcast moments have come from this podcast. So I appreciate the work that you do and, and your um uh, your dedication to reminding people why mythology is so important. Because as as I know you know, uh, I love storytelling and myths are the basis of a lot of that storytelling. We love stories. We love stories. We love stories. All right, everyone. This has been my amazing friend, Spencer Stark. Hey, Spencer, where can they find you? Yeah, you can find me at Spencer Stark on Twitter. Uh, that's S-P-E-N-S-E-R-S-T-A-R-K-E. Um, and, uh, yeah, or, uh, you can see the work that I do with Critical Role, uh, which is, uh, Critical Role, um, on Twitch. Uh, I, I used to produce the show. Now I've moved over to being a full-time game designer there. So we'll have games coming out in the next couple of God years. Uh, my <laughs> life is now making games. So look out for those and, yes! um, and yeah, there's, there's stuff coming soon. And I cannot recommend enough both of Spencer's games, Icarus and Alice is Missing. Alice is Missing is a personal favorite of mine. So if you like this podcast, you probably like Type 2 Fun, and that's going to be your <laughs> game. It's a really, really great game for people who have never played TTRPGs before or people who are a little more hesitant to play because it's not crunchy and it's all just the journey yeah it's interesting because we found that the people that it, it, it is it is intimidating in that it is mostly role-playing right like there's a lot of role-playing that goes on in it it is so if you're not if if you if you are not a huge role player that is a that is a piece to consider but it is also via text so you don't have to actually like talk out loud to people you are just in a group chat and in individual chats and because of that there's this um there's a separation that the screen provides that lets you like think about what you want to say and write it out and delete it <laughs> and come up with something else. It's really interesting. One of the things in the live in the in the actual plays that I've done as part of the job, like you have to do some actual plays sometimes in games. And uh, as part of that, we actually put everybody's screen uh, up during the during the like the stream. Mm-hmm. And so one of the techniques we used and knew that we had as players was the ability for us to. Um, sort of give the audience a peek into what we are thinking uh, by typing out a message that they can read, but nobody else, none of the other players can read it, but the audience can read it. And then erasing it and typing something else, not in a way that's like breaking the fourth wall, but is like something that I want to say, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to say, erase it, and then actually type what, I, what I'm going to send them. And that sort of is this weird breakthrough of like what the, the medium itself uh, it being observed by other people means that we play the game 
in a slightly different way. So anyway. That's actually a good point. A friend of the podcast, Kaylee Bray, who's also been on and hosted two of our Bluebeard episodes, was on an actual play. And if you want to watch Alice is Missing, uh, 10 out of 10 recommend. You can watch it many times through. I have because you kind of have to pay attention to a different person every time. So it's like a bunch of different shows <laughs> there are five screens up yeah <laughs> there are five screens up and five different stories happening and you have to choose a person to follow yeah it's pretty wild so follow spencer check out that show play all of his games and uh thanks for joining us if you like what we do tell a friend or tell a foe and we'll see you soon <laughs> okay <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our editor is Tyler Fetzik. Our music is by Taylor Ash. And our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch. Or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Spencer, say, and we'll see you soon, okay? What? Say, and we'll see you soon. And we'll see you soon. Say, and we'll see you soon. (laughs) And we'll see you soon. Okay. (laughs) I hope you leave all of that in. So good.